Welcome to the Informed Simplicity Project, a place for students looking for the informed simplicity on the far side of complexity. And this is your host, Jordan Harris. All right, I am so excited about today's presentation. This is a presentation that I gave for CEUs a few um, weeks ago. And the reason that I'm so excited to present the audio from this presentation on this podcast is because this is the information that basically has been my entire um, therapy life's work. And all of this information makes sense of why the name has changed and we are now the Informed Simplicity Project. So if you have any questions, feel free to email me. I'll leave my email in the, um, in the notes. And if you'd like to have this presentation brought to your organization, to your, to your classroom, to wherever you are, I'm happy to do this. This is a 40-minute version of about a six-hour presentation. Um, so I've cut out a lot of things, but I think in this presentation you still get the heart and the meat of what it means to be seeking informed simplicity. So without further ado, um, my presentation, Informed Simplicity. All right, have a good one. So in my uh, grad program, I was sort of weaned on stories of a therapist called Milton Erickson. Some of you know him, know of him. Um, and they always seem so like, how did he do that? Right? A sort of classic sort of Erickson fable is uh, the story of the African Violet Queen. Have you guys heard this story before? I'm sure you have. No. You haven't? You, you've heard it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, Erickson is the godfather of modern hypnosis in some ways. Um, Half of his, I had a huge influence on family therapy, and uh, of course had lots of students, right? So one day he was uh, traveling around, and one of his students called him up and said, "Hey, Dr. Erickson, my mom is not doing so well. Could you come and maybe just talk to her, do like a a home visit, see what you can do?" And Erickson, um, so yeah, sure, I can go see her. And so he goes and he goes to see her, and he knocks on the door. And she lets him in, and he says, you know, your son said I could come see you. Can I see your house? So she leads him around the house, and the house is dark. The windows are all shuttered. The blinds are all drawn. Um, so it's kind of a dark, depressing place. And it's obvious that this woman has become a bit of a shut-in, which is why her son said, Erickson, please go help my mom. But there's one room in the house where um, she has these violets growing. So after the tour of the house, Erickson and the lady are talking, and it comes out that she's a devout Catholic. She goes to church every day to pray for people. So Erickson says, I want you to go get a church bulletin. And for every holiday, for every graduation, for every birth, for every christening, give them a violet. And the person who tells the story the best is uh, a therapist named Bill O'Hanlon of solution-focused fame. And he says that at this point, Erickson said, go grab a binder off that shelf. And he grabs this photo album off the shelf and he opens it up. And as he's leafing through, he comes to a page with a clipping from a newspaper. And the clipping reads, African Violet Queen mourned by thousands. And somehow in the intervening years, the community in which she had lived had fallen in love with her. And when she finally passed, they all came out to her funeral. Um, I love these sorts of stories. I thought they were so creative and inventive 
and I had sort of been weaned on, um, I guess primed is a better word, because in my undergrad, I had read a lot of stuff on nonviolent resistance, right? And one of the things that you come to when you read and study nonviolent resistance is people like Mahatma Gandhi or uh, Dr. King, they do these things that seem paradoxical, but somehow have really profound changes, right? Who would think that you would overthrow the British Empire by going for a walk? Who would think that you would um, overturn Jim Crow by going to jail? These things don't make sense, but somehow they flip things on their end. So I wanted to work this way. And um, this is sort of the story you hear a lot of in the brief therapy world. Um, and I swung for the fence basically every session. Um, and I struck out almost every time. It was to the point that I had to, I almost didn't graduate because I didn't have enough hours. My clients would not come back. I had to watch a lot of tape. But there was something that kept me going and it was I would have these occasional successes. Right? So um, this one time, I saw a young black guy who said, I need help with my son. My son has problems, can I take him to come see you? And I don't, maybe Gail knows this, but if you're classically sort of trained in family therapy, one of the things you learn is, at least in my program, was pushed to work with the parents instead of the kids. Um, and so I said to him, hey, you know, if we can help you work on your own issues, you can be a better dad, and then, you know, you can handle all the things that your kid's going through. He said, okay. And as we're talking, session four or five comes out, that he had been basically molested by the, the boy next door from age like eight to 18. It had really, really, obviously, messed with him to the point that when he turned 18, he left home, went into the military with the intent to die. Somehow, um, he had avoided being on the front lines. He lived, came back to the States, and met a girl, and they had a kid. And now he was having trouble. I heard this story, and uh, obviously it's, it's heartbreaking, right? And I had heard this thing, and I said, I'm gonna try this. So I reached into my pocket, pulled out a few nickels and dimes, a few quarters, and I handed them to him. And he said, what's this? And I said, my friend, it looks like you just need some change. <laughs> His face exploded. Um, we ended session, he came back in next session. His jeans were washed. His hair was cut. He had a shirt that fit him. I said, what have you noticed different in the past week? He said, you know, there was this guy at my job. He reminded me of my abuser. He doesn't bother me anymore. So I have cases like this, um, and they kept me going. And I basically decided, okay, I've got to figure this thing out. So I went to a doc program. Um, hoping to find more of the same. And basically, I kept coming up empty. There was no one who was consistently doing the sort of thing that I read about in the books. So I stopped looking in our field, and I began to look across fields. My thought was, if Milton Erickson was an extreme outlier in his field, there have to be other Ericksons in other fields, people who are extreme outliers in, in other fields. And lo and behold, there are tons of them, right? You have people like Michael Jordan, 
Extreme Outlier in Basketball. You have Mozart, you have Picasso, you have a, vi a violinist named Paganini um, who revolutionized and changed everything we thought about violining. Um, violining? That's a word? We'll go with it. Um, and I basically have been knee neck deep in that research ever since. To me, this is important for one big reason. There is pain in the world. And I feel like as therapists, we are called to um, alleviate that pain, do that pain with compassion. And the sort of therapist who can regularly, regularly hand out change, right, or who can see the sort of um, specialness and uniqueness in even little old ladies who shut themselves away, is the kind of therapist I want to be. Um, so that's how this stuff sort of came about. Which leads me to part one, what is expertise? Um, I think that one of the most dangerous things that we do is we tell a myth about expertise. We say that people who are experts are geniuses, they're magicians, they're wizards. Um, they're just born with something that we're not born with. I think that's, um, I think it's a dangerous myth. And I think that there's a better story. Um, so let's start with Gary Klein. In the 1980s, everything cool died in the 80s. In the 1980s, there was a psychologist, a young guy fresh out of school. He said, I'm not going to go into school. I have my PhD, but I'm not going to do what those ivory tower people do. I'm going to study real world decision making. So he starts a company, gets a grant from the military to study real life decision making. And he decides, if I'm going to do this in the real world, obviously I can't go to combat situations, um, I'm going to work with firefighters. I'm going to interview firefighters and figure out how do they do what they do. So he goes and talks to some firefighters, gets a bunch of them all in a room, and he says, okay, how do you make decisions, firefighters? Do you do like pros and cons? Do you run through a checklist? And they all laughed at him. They're all like, that's ridiculous. We don't make decisions. And Gary said, okay, I have this grant. Everything's going up in smoke as we speak. <laughs> um, so how do you know what to do? And they said, after a while being in this job, you just develop ESP. And he said, wow, okay, I'm really screwed. So... Like say, say that there's a fire, like you have to know what to do. And they say, well, yeah, well, there's a, there's a list of procedures that, that you do. And he says, well, can I see the list? And they go, we don't have it written down. You just know it. Gary says, well, I've been here five minutes, burned my research proposal to the ground. I have all day. Why don't you walk me through the process? And the firefighters say things like, okay, well, uh, the last fire that I was in, I walked into the building with my team. We went in, and um, there was smoke everywhere. Couldn't see the fire, and it was a little strange because it was colder, th colder than I thought it was going to be. And I found myself yelling, "Everybody out!" So we all left, and as soon as we did, <laughs> it collapsed. So you see, ESP. And Gary heard story after story after story like this. 
And after a while, he began to see a pattern. He said, wait, 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 wait. There was a cue that you picked up on. You said that you went into that building and it felt colder. Tell me about that. And he said, yeah, well, when I was a rookie, I was in this building. The fire was in a part of the building that it wasn't supposed to be in. And my boss was like, this is dangerous. We got to get out. And basically what he discovered was experts respond to cues in their environment that remind them of a past experience. It's like a movie. They then play through that movie. They remember how that movie ends. If they can predict how it ends, they know how to respond and they use that solution. He, he terms this recognition prime decision making. Basically, it's like this. You have a situation. You go into the fire building. It's colder than it should be. This reminds you of the time when you were first on the, on the um, team. You remember what happens. It tells you what to do, and you apply that to your original situation. It gets tricky, though, because these cues are often outside of their conscious awareness. They're sort of in the background. So it feels intuitive. It feels like it's just happening which is why they can't tell you about it. Um, but there is a sort of pattern here. So basically what he discovered from this is that all of these experts have advanced pattern matching in the back of their minds. Um, and that this pattern matching is done through picking up on cues in their environment. So this is the first out of three reasons why I think that this myth of magic will not die. Because when you ask people, they don't know what to tell you. They don't always consciously know the cues that they're picking up on that actually tells them what situation this is and what to do. Um, but some people do see the cues. These people who see the cues, we pay them thousands of millions of dollars to go and do more, to, to go and do it again. My favorite example of this is J.J. Abrams, the remake king of the past 20 years. Every famous movie that's been done has been redone basically by him because he's the guy who sees the cues. They say, hey, we want to remake Star Wars. And what does he do? He goes gets all the cues, makes a new movie. People pay millions of dollars to go see the movie. They say, hey, we want to remake Mission Impossible. What does he do? He goes, remakes Mission Impossible, he does it again. Um, there's, for a while, I, was, I don't have the slide up, but for a while I was obsessed with uh, this guy who was an art forger over in Germany. He was busted about 10 years ago. Um, but for basically 40 years, he had been forging different people's art. People were paying millions of dollars for this art, and they couldn't catch him. And if you watch, there's a beautiful video of him doing this, where he does things that are seemingly bizarre and extreme. So he'll go to old, old places and get um, old, old paintings, rip out the painting, so he has a frame from that time period, because he knows that's a cue the art experts are gonna be looking for. If this person, I think he was doing a Cezanne in the video, if this person, um, like Cezanne, painted on a wood floor, 
Well, over in Germany, I think he's in Germany, um, there's not a lot of wood floors. So he goes out to old bridges, gets his canvas, and starts to paint. Because on those old bridges, the slats are very similar to old wood floors from two, three hundred years ago, or whenever he's doing his, his imitation. So he sees the cues and basically fooled the art world for, you know, 40 years. You see it also in movies. Have you guys seen this movie? Yeah. This, this movie's all about a guy. He's like 16, 17 in the movie. He sees the cues and can manipulate people all around him. Right? He knows that, he knows that the cues of being a doctor, right, or you have the diploma, you have the white coat, people will basically do whatever you say. Um, so, there's a caveat to this. Expertise can only develop in a certain context. Certain context. You have to have a context that is basically learnable, where you can get clear and reliable feedback. What this means is there are areas where you think there are experts, but there aren't. And you, there are areas where you think there couldn't be experts, but there are. My favorite example of this is radiology and um, pig ranchers. So I didn't realize this until I started doing this. But typically, radiologists, you go in, you get some scans done. They try to tell you if you have some sort of um, cancer or something. They are not really good at um, reading the scans. As a whole, they're not very good at that. Why is that? Because they don't follow up six months later to see if you're alive or if you're dead. The radiologists who perform really well are the ones who go on to get some sort of advanced training in radiology. <coughs> and what they do is that they have a teacher, a professor, some sort of physician who has already honed that skill. And that person tells you, no, this is not this is, this is not, this is. That person gives them the feedback. Um, so you would think that for someone who goes to school and becomes a radiologist that they know that they are really good at their job. Not necessarily so. The flip side of that is, uh, I heard a story once um, about a pig ranching specialist. He gets called in by big pig ranching corporations to measure smells. Because if you're gonna if you're gonna plant a pig ranch someplace, the people in the community don't want it stinking up their community. And so all day long he goes around with this uh, odor meter, and he can and it tells him what chemicals are in the fumes. And what he has developed is this ability to tell you what you've eaten by the smell of your fart. He says that this is how he met his wife. Uh, well, that's a different story for a different time. But you wouldn't think someone would be able to do that. But if you have a way of getting reliable, quick feedback, then you can learn uh, things that are pretty incredible. So I want you to take a second um, and just think about this question. You don't have to write it down. But what's your takeaway from this session, from this section? I'm going to give you 10 seconds to think about it. Then I'll give you mine. After learning this, my big takeaway was expertise is advanced pattern matching. 
but it can only grow in a context with learnable rules and quick feedback. So that brings us to the second big part of the presentation. How do we get this skill? Um, and this kind of leads into the second reason why I think the myth of magic probably won't die. But you'll know better. Um, so there was another researcher in the 80s named Anders Ericsson. Uh, he's a bit of a minor celebrity recently. Um, and he was studying memory, studying memory. Anybody who's been in an intro psych class knows that um, there's a classic paper that the human mind can remember seven bits of information plus or minus two in any one setting, right? Um, but Anders had read about this paper, I think from the 30s, where someone was able to remember like 22 bits of information, right? I don't know if you're like me, uh, but that's incredible. Like a phone number, I'm like, what? That's, and that's like seven digits. I'm like, okay. So 22 is really impressive. So he got, you know, as all psychologists do, except for Gary Klein, he got an undergrad to come work for him as um, a research participant. Two of them. One was a guy named Steve. One was a lady. I think her name was Renee. And he had them memorize numbers. And after the first month, they had about seven. And then the, a few weeks later, they got to about ten. And then they hit 20, and um, a few months later, Steve went to 30, Renee stayed at 20. Steve hit 40, Renee stayed at 20. Um, Steve hit like 50, Renee dropped out. And he wanted to figure out what is the difference. Steve is progressing, Renee is not. And what he learned when he interviewed both of them was, Steve came in to each session with a plan on how to deliberately improve. He was very purposeful in his practice. Whereas Renee would do whatever felt right in the moment. Um, so an example of this is Steve said, I'm going to memorize these numbers based on um, good, good times for running the mile. He was a college athlete. So if a number came up of 725, he goes, okay, 725, 725, that's a decent mile time if you haven't trained. Um, Renee would go in and say, 725 is the time it was this morning when I woke up. And then the next set of numbers, 821, 821, Steve would say, okay, 821, that's a mile time that is slower if you've trained. And Renee would say, July 21st. Both of them found ways to chunk information into bits, but Steve had a system. After Renee dropped out, um, Steve Anders had Steve recruit his, his buddy, who was also an athlete, into the program. And um, he had Steve teach him, teach, I think his friend's name was Diego, I don't remember off the top of my head, teach him Steve's method. Very, very quickly, Diego's scores began to rise until at a point they didn't quite work for him and he developed his own method that his his own version of Steve's method and this for Anders led him into this whole field of why are some people better than others at different performances and what he found out was there are different types of practice most people when they do something 
they think because they've put in a lot of time and effort that that counts as practice and that they've gotten better. I call this the fast and the furious effect. I've driven, I got my license when I was 20, I think, and I've driven, you know, for the past, what, nine years? So obviously I can drive for the fast and furious. I have so much practice, right? Um, other people are more purposeful in their practice. If they develop a plan to systematically improve, especially in their weak areas, they get better, like Steve. But there's a level above this. It's called the deliberate practice. And this is when you have a field with clear goals and strategies on how to get there. This is what Steve was able to give to his buddy. This is the path forward. Um, there's one other thing I want to hit on this. Is that something else that Anders Ericsson discovered was people who are experts, they value experiences over theory and ideas. Right? This goes back to the radiologists. Those people all know the same theories and ideas. But they don't have the experience of looking at a sheet, looking at a scan, and being able to tell you what it is. You see the same thing with like NICU nurses. Nurses who've been on the floor for 10, 20 years, they can look at a baby and tell, oh, this baby's looking kind of jaundiced. He might be at a risk for sepsis. A new nurse on the floor, even though she knows the same book knowledge, she hasn't had the time through, and they will, they will regularly miss things. Um, I'm gonna skip that. So, I'm gonna pause here, it's about 1.40, and I wanna open the floor up to questions, and then maybe we can hit the last section for it at the end today. Any questions, thoughts, reflections? It's pretty clear. Well, how to get expertise, like the, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about this clinically because there are so many different um, um, training programs or like uh, certifications mm -hmm. in ER, somatic experiencing, EFT, mm -hmm. you know, CBT, all of it, CGEA, all of it, all of it. Um, I, so I, I, I think it's interesting that we can, we can teach ourselves these things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to get yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So the que so it's not really a question, but it's no, a statement of a of um, oftentimes we can be practicing, going to trainings, reading books, but that's different than getting on the path of path of, of expertise. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um. <coughs> Does the path of expertise challenge experiential blindness? In what way? Like uh, so deliberate practice, rapid feedback, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so like the story of the firefighters, um, part of what allowed them to be unconsciously intuitive was based on an experience mm -hmm. that they pulled upon automatically. Mm -hmm. lack of an experience could leave you just being like, I don't know what to do. Yes. So I think that's very true. 
I think the lack of experience leaves you without what to do. So, so what she was saying was that just because you get trained in something doesn't mean yes, yes, absolutely. You have to value the experience, or value the experience over the theory or the idea. Absolutely. You have to value absolutely. the um, experiential nature of progression. Yes, absolutely. One hundred percent. So, if that's how expert, we know what expertise is, pattern matching. We know how to get there. Purposeful practice, at least. Deliberate practice, at best. Um, what about our field? Counseling, psychotherapy. Um, I think there's two parts to this. One is, is our field set up to give us clear, reliable feedback? And is it actually possible to learn that in our field? or is Every individual is so different that you can't do it. Um, my experience, and I think this is true for most people, is that the field is not set up for click for clear, reliable feedback. Um, so I think that we don't work in a context which allows that to happen often. Um, I do think it is possible, though, for two reasons. One is um, we know certain therapists reliably perform better than other therapists, which tells me that they are reliably doing something that is effective. So that it, it is possible to learn to do it because someone is doing it. If every individual was just so different, then one therapist could not outperform another therapist. It'd be too varied. Um, I think we also know from people like John Gottman who do long-term sort of research that there are certain cues in relationships that predict outcome, right? So John Gottman says, you give me four cues, four points on a, on a graph, critique, contempt, stonewalling, and defensiveness, and I can tell you for now 90% accuracy whether you'll be together in, what, 15 years. Um, so to me, it tells me that it is learnable. Um, so then what is this thing that we call counseling? Um, there was a recent meta-analytic study in a book which basically says that the overall effect size of therapy is 0.04 to 0.8, 0.4 to 0.8, which averages out to be about 0.6, right? 
um, for those of you who aren't statisticians, basically that's a strong effect size. So therapy is largely effective. Um, you listen to people like Scott Miller, um, who has done research on how long people are in therapy. And on average, in outpatient settings, um, people are in therapy in community care for about five sessions. In private practice, they're in therapy for 10 to 12 sessions on average. Um, I guess point eight is on the high end of medium effect. It's still a good effect. 50% um, of clients drop out. Um, we also know that somewhere, but this is a huge number, 17 to 50% of people have sudden gains, which means that early in treatment, they experience um, reliable changes that do last over the long period. Oftentimes that happens before the bulk of the therapy, which is sort of counterintuitive. Um, five to 10% of people get worse, 35 to 40% of people in therapy experience no change. Um, so all of this tells me, first off, if you're hitting these benchmarks, you're doing better than average. If you're above these benchmarks, you're doing better than, than average in a field where average is largely effective. It also tells me that I think um, what people are really coming in for, um, let's see if I can do this, is um, some sort of empathic relief relatively briefly. I don't think the majority of people are coming in for long-term, deep identity level work. Um, this is also makes more sense to me because when you look at the most effective therapists, they tend to see people for fewer sessions than the longer, um, than um, less effective therapists on average. Um, there's a recent study out of the UK where the best therapists saw people, I think for five or less sessions. The best therapist we have on record, Yuri Vlas, sees, um, forget what's how many sessions she, she sees people, but they regularly have their sudden gains within um, at between session one and session two. So she does an intake, she has a first session, they have their gains, they have a second session. To your follow-up, these people will report maintaining their gains. So therapy is largely a brief enterprise. Um, So I'm gonna give you guys two recommendations to how to improve, and then I'm going to wrap up. The first recommendation I would have for you guys is to track your outcomes. I think it's helpful for people to know. I track mine. Um, it's very helpful for me to know. The second is to watch your tape. This week has been bad for me, and I haven't watched. I haven't recorded as much as I usually do. I try to record every session. That way, if something goes off the wall or is out of the ordinary, I can go back and I can watch it. Um, this is a really small slide which shows my own numbers. I think that in the field, we need to be open about this because I think it pushes us to be better. And I don't want to do anything. I don't want to say anything to you that I'm not doing. Um, you can't see this right here, but my effect size for couples is 0.97 compared to people who don't come into tr treatment. Compared to other therapists, my effect size is 0 0.2. 0 0.1 is, means that, 0.1 is really good. Um, and so 
compared to people who don't go into treatment, people who come to see me tend to do pretty well. In my, in, this is in my active cases. Um, and then compared to other therapists, I'm slightly above average. Um, and then for individuals, my effect is a 0.91. That's out of 100, right? So it's a 90 out of 100 in a sense. Um, for individuals compared to other therapists, that's a 0.1. That's not very, it's a little bit better than average, but so. So, oh, do we have audio here? We don't. Okay. Um, so, there was a book I read about a year ago, two years ago, by a guy named Josh Waitzkins. Josh Waitzkins is, he was heralded in the early 90s as the second coming of Bobby Fischer. For those of you who knew Bobby Fischer, Bobby Fischer was the Michael Jordan of chess. Um, and he was really, really special because at that time, chess was dominated by the Russians. So an American challenging the Russians, basically is like the Russians trying to beat us in basketball. It's like, this is never gonna happen. But then he does. The US government wants him to basically work for them, um, at least to not compete in, in different um, matches for political reasons. Bobby Fischer says, no, I wanna play chess, and disappears. Early 90s, Josh begins to win every national championship. His dad writes a book called Searching for Bobby Fischer, semi-heralding his son as the next Bobby Fischer. Uh, the book becomes a movie, which I saw when I was a kid. The movie makes Josh famous between the pressure of being famous and competing at a world-class level. Josh takes up Tai Chi as a meditative art, decides to drop chess, go full-time into Tai Chi. And the book is about his run at the world champion at two world championships and standing and moving push hands and about his process for transferring level from one art to the next world-class art from one art, from one world-class skill from one art to the next josh says in this book that one of the things that masters do is after they've deliberately practiced and gotten their cues they condense and condense their techniques into more and more potent um, moves. So when you first start out, you might unbalance them by trying to push them really, really hard. And then later, when you're much more sort of um, sophisticated, you can do that. And you can off-balance people in very nuanced ways, and they don't know how it happened. And I think that this is the thing that Erickson was able to do. There's a quote that I have. Um, I love this picture. So this is a picture that Mozart, no Mozart, uh, um, Picasso painted when he was a kid. And there's this beautiful, beautiful <coughs> part of this podcast I was listening to, where the guy's saying, he's talking about his time with Bobby Fischer. And he's asked, what was Bobby Fischer like? And the guy, Adam, says, Bobby Fischer had this simplicity, but it's this like um, informed simplicity. He said he didn't really get that until he saw a picture, photo, uh, art that Picasso painted when he was a kid. He says, you can't really appreciate Picasso later when it's just shapes and squiggles without understanding that when he was 
in his teens, he was painting like Rembrandt. So when he goes as an older person, starts painting these shapes that are weird and kind of, you know, um, abstract, it's from this place of informed simplicity, not a childlike simplicity. And Bobby Fischer was like that. And I think Erickson was like that as well. And that's what I want for all of us.